Welcome to Short Course, episode 38, for October 19th, 2018. I'm your host, Ben Barry. Last week, I covered the first half of my notes about the upcoming USPSA rulebook changes, and so this week will be the second half of those, and so we will dive right in. 8.7.4 is probably going to be one of the more controversial rule changes, I think, and definitely make sure to read the, the finalized rule if in case any changes are made between as I record this in, in October 2018 and when the final 2019 rulebook comes out. But what it basically says is that by default, unless something is stated in the matchbook, you are not allowed to inspect stages unless range staff is around, at which point as long as they are present to, quote, supervise, doesn't say they have to approve, but they just have to be around. As long as there's range staff around, you can inspect the courses of fire when people aren't shooting the stages. So obviously this applies to matches where you're showing up a day early to walk the stages, so level two and above matches, generally speaking. But it just shifts the default that unless something is specified, if there's no staff around, the stages to be considered off limits, which honestly I think is not a bad rule. I, I'm I'm always a little bit nervous when I'm walking past a stage and I see one or two competitors on a stage by themselves with no staff around. It, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine what kind of mischief they could get up to, but I think my hope is that the the outcome of this is that matches will do what matches around here have been doing, and just making sure to be very clear about when staff are posted and that staff should be posted even during off hours, just having one range officer just to keep an eye on the stage so that competitors can inspect it. Because I think at least as long as we allow pre-match inspection of the stages, that it should be as open as possible. The, The hours should be as long as possible to give competitors who are driving from wherever they're driving to the day before the match an equal chance to inspect the stages. But I think hopefully this will incentivize matches to make sure that somebody from the range staff is there to keep an eye on things and that it's now expected that competitors know that if nobody's around, stay off the stages. I I think that's a good thing. Now, it could very well lead to match directors not contradicting that because it can say that, that, that a match director can say you're welcome to walk the stages even if no staff is around. So they, they can make that exception if they want to, but it changes the default to unless the match director specifies it, you're not allowed to be on the stage without staff present. I don't see a lot of match directors making that exception. Honestly, I feel like match directors tend to be, tend to want to keep a pretty tight lid on things. And so they'll want to have staff around Unfortunately, I could see a scenario where this just leads to courses being closed anytime that the competitors aren't shooting, and maybe we end up in more of an IPSC-like situation where there really is not as much of a chance to walk stages before you shoot. I don't know. But I think in general, making the default that there should be staff if competitors are on the stage, from a match administration, competitive equity fairness standpoint, I think that makes sense. The next two rules could be somewhat controversial. The first one is a slight modification to 9.1.2, which are the existing rules about competitors or their delegates touching targets before they've been scored and 
the existing rules already allow if the RO thinks that the competitor has tampered with the target in some way, he can call it missed or if he, it gives broad RO discretion to, to, (laughs) to disincentivize that kind of behavior. The change is that if that happens now, the range master must be called and notified. I'm not sure I entirely understand this rule just because if the range master wasn't there to see the initial incident, what's he going to do? And it says his call is final. I I assume he's going to defer to the RO who was there to see it. So I'm not exactly sure why the RM would be called. The, The only thing that comes to mind is potentially if the RM is called repeatedly for the same person on different stages, if somebody is, is getting into trouble for this multiple times over the course of a match, then he can start to track that. And so because it's mandatory to call the RM, he can keep a mental register of who keeps getting in trouble for this. That said, more matches these days are going to the step of having multiple range masters, whether it's a range master per zone or just having two or three floating range masters and whoever is available to go make a call can can make the call. And whether or not that policy makes sense or I mean I think having range masters assigned to zones so they're making the same consistent calls for all the the stages and there's only one the buck stops with one person for a given stage I think that makes sense. But you can imagine a competitor moving between the different zones and if a different range master is called as they get various tampering with the targets calls on them then the different range masters might not find out so it's not really clear what the what purpose calling the range master serves though if you really want to solve the issue of competitors getting the same penalty on different stages that's i mean that's why ipsc has this system of of having the competitor scorecard where they you mark down when they're given warnings and then if you see that the RO on the last stage gave them a warning for something and then they do it again, now you can start giving them procedurals. I think that's the tool to solve this job. Whether or not we'll see that in USPSA, I think, is is a different topic. But that's that's the only thing that I can think of why you would call the RM to rule on activity because it's, it's not really scoring the target per se. It's, it's how, what the competitor did before the RO got to the target. And the, the range master wasn't there to see it. He's going to be hearing secondhand accounts. So interesting. I don't think it's a problem, but it just doesn't, I don't necessarily understand the, the motivation behind it. So the next one, I, I really want to put a disclaimer on this because the rule has not been changed in the proposed rule book. What they did is they included a possible change that the way it's worded, it sounds like this will not become the rule unless they decide to. So this, this may never come to pass. This may just be forgotten as a footnote, but the proposed change is that in the case of a target being patched prematurely by somebody who's not a range officer, who's, who's not a part of the match staff, if a target gets patched prematurely, the shooter does not get a reshoot and the target is scored as presented. And this seems really harsh at first, but... The more I think about it, the more I actually like the idea of this rule. So the scenario here is you're at nationals, you're at an area match, whatever, and guys are shooting with their friends. Some guy completely has some nightmare jam or plugs a no-shoot or something, and without having to communicate with his buddy, but sort of with a wink and a nod maybe, or just knowing each other, the buddy whoopsie prematurely patches a target. Rules as written... That's a reshoot for the guy that that just had a terrible stage. And 
I think reshoots should should be handed out, especially at bigger matches. I think they should only be handed out very carefully. And this this change, if it were actually added to the rulebook, would make it so that you could not get your buddy a free reshoot by prematurely pasting one of his targets. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, I don't know how common that is. I know I've talked before about cheating being relatively hard in USPSA. I think that is actually, I would I would call that cheating. And I think that if it were to happen, it would be bad for the sport. And like I say, I don't know if it's actually happening, but certainly the potential is there. And so if by adding this rule change, we can foreclose the option of doing that and as the stakes get higher, as the sport continues to grow, hopefully as more sponsors continue to come in, as God forbid, maybe there's actually real prizes on the line for winning a big match, the incentive to cheat is going to get bigger. And so if we can close if we can close down avenues for that, because I mean, let's be honest, this is this is a really this could really swing a match. If somebody has some kind of 10 second death jam or plugs two no-shoots and his buddy can get him a reshoot by prematurely pasting a target and then playing dumb, not even saying that he did it, just, oh, who pasted this target? I don't know. It must, you know, all right, guy gets a reshoot. I, I think I think that could be a problem as, as the sport continues to grow. That said, I would be curious. I, I, would, I would like to see some modification of this for level one matches. I don't know exactly what the modification would look like. I think de facto... I know what I do as a range officer is I I will I will bend the rules a little bit at a level one match when there's not a lot on the line. If it's some guy, you know, relatively new, not that big of a deal. And I can tell, you know, if the guy who pasted it says these are the holes or I can tell from the pasters somewhere or another what the what the hits were, we'll we'll give the guy the, the score that we fairly think he got. Like that's I think that's pretty common at level ones. Encoding that into the rules would probably be a good thing. But I think at level two and above matches, I think this is a sound rule because at level ones, you do have guys pasting for the first time. And and generally speaking, every single time that I've seen a target be pasted early at a level one match, it's been an accident. It's been somebody who wasn't paying attention and it was probably late in the day and they were just on autopilot, just trying to paste targets and go home. And so I I don't think I've ever seen an incident of this being done maliciously at a level one to, to gain an advantage. But I think there's the potential for it to be done at level two and above matches. And so maybe this rule should just be applied there. I, I'm not entirely sure, but I definitely like the idea at big matches that if a really at any match where there's, where there is dedicated staff, I guess maybe that's what it is. If there's dedicated staff at a match and someone who isn't on the staff pays the target early, competitor gets it as shot. And, and that way it's a higher burden. When you go to those larger matches, you know, to make sure that the guy the guy's targets have been scored before you're pasting, which I think people already do if you're even having competitors paste at larger matches, which often you aren't. But I certainly think this is a an excellent example of why competitors shouldn't be pasting at big matches. But that said, it's a reality that it does happen. And if it does happen, I think this rule makes sense. I think it closes an avenue for potential cheating. So I, I would actually like to see this rule go in just based on the, the thought that I've given it. I, I could be, I, I'm open to the idea that it, that it might have bad consequences, but just from, from thinking through it, I think it's, I think it's a good idea. But again, as it's written right now, this, this won't necessarily go in. 
Okay, so back to more of the clarification cleanup type rules changes. Uh, 9.7.1 is the rule section about signing score sheets, and it adds a, a clarification that when you're using, they say electronic scoring. We all know they mean practice score, although in theory someone could develop another system. But they're saying that the RO pressing review constitutes him signing, and the competitor pressing approve represents his. And I think that's a good thing. Just because I I would like to see in the etiquette of practice score, in the etiquette of using electronic scoring, I'd like to see the competitor being presented the tablet with the review screen open and being given enough time to review it and then him pressing accept or approve. This, you know, level one's not, not such a big deal, but especially at a big match, give me a second to catch my breath. I just shot the stage. Let me look it over, make sure I understand all the procedurals, look for, look for anything that looks out of place. I mean, I think they could make the screen a little bit better, make the, like, if you do have procedurals, make that stand out a little bit more. It, it can get pretty easily lost in among a bunch of zeros down further on the page. But give me, yeah, give me a second, hand me the tablet. Like, let me look at it for 10 seconds, and and then I press review, and that constitutes my signature. Because as is right now, there's, there's no uniformity at matches. Some big matches you're you're presented the tablet and asked to hit approve sometimes the the ro is just kind of holding it out at arm's length obviously not in a way where it's comfortable to stand there for for any period of time so i think adding rules to to call out the fact that pressing approve is the same as you signing the score sheet puts the burden of seriousness on it in a way that was not explicit in the rules before so clarification gray area updating the rule book Good, good. I like it. 9.7.6.2, minor change, but it makes it so that if you don't have as many scoring hits as the stage requires, so if somehow a score gets submitted with 24 hits and it's 26 round stage, previously the missing hits would be mics, and so you'd actually get all the negative penalties of that. This changes it so that the missing penalties are scored as no penalty mics, so you don't get the points for the shots you didn't shoot, but you don't get the minus 10 for every shot that's missing as well. And again, this only applies to the case where ROs have already screwed up, you already have fewer hits than you should have, and it just it, it makes the penalty somewhat less severe. You're not going to win the stage this way anyway, and you're not really going to be able to get into this situation on your own. It, it requires the ROs to mess up. But in this situation where that happens, it, it makes the, the kick to the nuts on the competitor a little softer. So... Makes sense to me. I don't really see any downside. This next one, I I like. And this goes back to, again, something that happened at a, at a level 2 match that I went to. And the rule change is 9.9.3. And the rule is changed so that if you do not activate a moving target before you fire your last shot in the course of fire, then you get all of the failure to shoot at and miss penalties for that target. So... This resolves the issue where you would get, again, some of these somewhat gimmicky stages where the competitor goes through, shoots the whole stage, and then after they fired their last shot, they calmly walk over, and whether it's a stomp box or a window or something, they then activate this moving target, obviously to not get all the penalties that the target must have been visible at some point before being activated. But if they chose to shoot the target 
before it was activated, and then they activate it, air quotes, off the clock between their last shot and unload and show clear, that would now be a penalty. And I think this is a good thing because it doesn't happen a lot, but I mean, it did happen. And again, not to not to make the South Carolina section match sound bad because it was a great match, but they did have a stage set up like this where almost every competitor ended up shooting the stage and then with a hot gun walking forward and opening a port that activated a moving target where you could see the headshot on the, the moving target before it was activated. And almost everybody that wanted to be competitive that I saw took the headshot while it was static instead of opening the port because it let you skip moving up to that port. And so it just, I don't know, it's cheesy. Usually stages where it's an advantage, it usually where you would use it, it was not what the stage was designed, how the stage was designed to be shot. And it's just goofy. It's like, if someone's watching match video of it, it just, it looks goofy. I don't think it's, I don't think it's an interesting wrinkle to the sport. I don't think it adds anything to the competitive value of the sport. And so just clarifying that you have to activate all the moving targets before your last shot, or you take all the penalties. Makes sense to me. I like it. Let's say you forget to activate it, then go forward, activate it and fire another shot. And at least all you'll have is the extra time on your score, but you won't get all the failure to shoot ats and, and miss penalties because the way it's, the way it's worded, if it's a swinger or something, you get the failure to shoot at and all the hits that you would have gotten on that target are, are taken away as misses. And so if it's a swinger, that's going to be 10 points for the procedural for failure to shoot at and then two mics instead of whatever alphas you did shoot on it. So you're going to be missing out on 40 points, something like that. So even even eating a couple extra seconds on the clock is probably going to be worth it if if worst comes to worst and you just have to fire another shot to, to stop the clock. But there again, I think people will stop planning stages that way. And I think it'll make the sport better. So a couple changes in 10.2.1, which is talking about procedural penalties for fault lines. And the, the two interesting changes to me, the first is 10.2.1.1 which says that you can now judge significant advantage per target, which is actually something that's bitten me as a range officer before. Some guy will fault a line and he shoots three targets while faulting, and it's really only a significant advantage on one of the targets. So two, it doesn't really improve his view on, but on the third, it, it does. Something like that. And before, it was either one procedural or procedural per shot fired. So in that scenario, he either got one penalty or six, and neither really felt like the right answer. And now it says you can judge significant advantage based on the individual targets. And so in that case, I'd give him one for faulting and then two for the significant advantage on the one target that he got the, the penalty on. So he gets three procedurals instead of six. Still not going to be a great score, but he might not zero the stage. I think it makes sense. It's, it's just reasonable given that significant advantage isn't always clear cut. It's usually clear cut per target, but per position it might not be. Uh, the other one is... 10.2.1.2, which says that shots fired with after leaving the shooting area with both feet out of the shooting area will be procedural per shot fired. I don't know that this is necessarily required. I think the significant advantage rules cover most of this, but it is it is nice to have it be very cut and dried, where if you leave the shooting area and both feet are outside, it's procedural per shot fired. 
in end of story. So clarification may be overkill, but really if you've got somebody shooting with both feet outside the shooting area, it's something's gone terribly wrong. So back to what we were talking about much, much earlier with 10.2.1. And this is where, this is really the meat and potatoes of the cutting out the shenanigans about standing on wall supports. And this is a, I mean, it's a long paragraph, but the, the relevant verbiage that's been added is all wall or platform supporting structures, including but not limited to feet, braces, angle supports, chains, cables, etc., are deemed to be non-existent and cannot be used for support. Any wall sections completely outside the fault lines cannot be used for support, even if that wall section touches a wall section that is in direct contact with the shooting area. Wall, feet, or supports that touch fault lines do not constitute touching for purposes of this rule. So, no more standing on feet, braces, nothing. And this goes hand-in-hand with a new rule, 10.3.7 which says climbing or standing on an object that is not specifically designed and intended for that purpose and identified in the written stage brief as permitted to be used for that purpose shall result in a match disqualification. So basically, if you're not supposed to stand on it and it's pretty clear that you're not supposed to stand on it and you stand on it, it's a DQ. Which, I'm not sure DQ, I don't know. Is that that a safety issue? It's certainly, you should zero the stage, but... The idea is if there's a table on a stage and you can somehow stand on the table and see over the walls, which should be fixed by the idea of having infinite height walls by default. But if you do stand on something and get some kind of that wasn't meant to be stood on and get some kind of competitive advantage and it's in the in the opinion of the range staff was not designed for it, which usually it's pretty clear if something was designed to be stood on, then then that's a DQ. So again, closing loopholes, closing some of the the gimmicks. Good, good. I'm a fan. So that's it for the main rulebook. There are a couple of changes to the appendices. Nothing super relevant. Uh, some some minor changes around match ammunition, just so that some of the some of the syntech federal stuff and the the rules around whether that's considered match ammunition is being improved. The one change slash clarification. I, I think this kind of falls under something that that we knew, but at least it's being called out specifically is that in production, they they make it a little bit more clear about opening up the magwell internally is allowed. So if you want to dremel out your internal magwell and and make the the edges smoother and make the opening bigger, as long as you're not actually extending the outside diameter of the magwell, you're fine. You're good to go. And so, okay, that, that was always my understanding of the rules. It was never quite firm enough that I think people, it was still a little bit esoteric. Guys were, guys kind of felt like they were living dangerously if they did it. I mean, honestly, I think we might start seeing gunsmiths sell a package the same way that they'll sell hogging out the loading port on a three-gun shotgun. They'll they'll offer to do that for your Tanfo or your Shadow 2 now. I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see that. On the one hand, I think it's kind of counter to the ethos of production, which is you're, there's really not that much that a gunsmith can really do to a production gun. But... I don't know. At the same time, you can do a lot with a trigger job and stuff. I don't think it'll be a significant competitive advantage. I think I don't think it'll magically make guys reload better. And I think it's pretty hard to police anyway. I mean, my magwells are getting pretty chewed up. And if I if I were to take a Dremel to it and polish off some of the not actually be trying to remove material, but just polish off some of the burrs, 
would that be modifying the gun? Now this this provides a little bit of clarity on that. So I think that's a good change. So like I said, I don't I don't really see this as being a, a dramatic change to the rules. Certainly most of these changes are less serious than the the hammer adjustment or the, the proposed production rule changes to allow more more parts to be in, in production. So all of the, the things, all of these revisions, I think clarify the rules. I think they make the sport better. I think they remove jankiness and gray area. And so I'm I'm actually I'm on board with this. I did actually file a, a couple of comments, which I appreciate the fact that there was a very easy form to fill out to do that and, and submit comments. We'll see if they're taken into account. Nothing nothing major, just suggested improvements and, and breaking out certain things to be a little bit clearer. But so far I I, I I'm very pleased with this process. The the change log, the updated rule book is very clear. I, the one complaint that I will make is that they they've reformatted the rule book to to look more modern. And the main thing, the main two ways they did that is they changed from a serif to a sans serif font and the the tables in the division appendices no longer have grid lines, they're just shaded in the background. To me, that makes it a little bit harder to read and skim. Like, there's a reason books are published in a serif font. It's easier to read faster. Sans serif looks modern, it looks cooler, but it's not necessarily as easy to read. That's my only complaint. That's it. That's all I got. I, I don't I don't have anything else for you. So if you're if you are a USPSA member, you can you can get to the proposed rules and give them a read yourself. Let me know if there's anything you think I missed or anything that you disagree with. Like I said, I, I think this is going to be good for the sport. I think it's making much needed updates. I think it clarifies gray area, and and I really don't have anything to to pick a bone with. So I'm I'm excited to see it happen, and we'll see what the the actual rules are when they get published at the the beginning of the 2019 season. Well, that wraps up this episode of Short Course. If you want to get in touch, my email is podcast at barryshooting.com. I post all of my match videos on YouTube at youtube.com slash Talk to you next time.